Section 23 of the South American Republics, Volume 1, by Thomas Cleland Dawson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Piotr Nater. Part 3, Uruguay. Chapter 6, Colorados and Blancos. The overthrow of Rosas and Oribe marked the end of the effort to reincorporate Uruguay with the Argentine Confederation. Uruguay was no longer in peril from foreign aggression, but she was far from being united. The Blancos had apparently been completely crushed, but their wealth, prestige, and numbers still made them formidable. The seeds of division lay thickly in the soil of the national society and character, sure to spring up and bear many crops of wars and pronunciamentos. For the moment, however, the fierce Uruguayan partisans had had enough of fighting. The Colorados were dominant, and the Blancos disorganized and discouraged. It seemed likely that Uruguay would enjoy a prolonged peace. The wars, which lasted almost continuously from 1843 to 1851, had interrupted immigration from Europe. Unitarians had, however, crossed in multitudes from Buenos Aires, and many of their families remained after the proclamation of peace. To this day, Montevideo is full of families descended from Buenos Aires refugees, the same names constantly reoccur on both banks of the plate, and the social ties uniting the two cities are intimate. Uruguay's herds of cattle and sheep had suffered from the depredations of the armed marauding bands which had scoured the country districts for nine years, but men's cruel destructiveness could not injure the magnificent pasturage with which the nature have endowed the nation. And animals quickly multiplied again by hundreds of thousands. In 1860, the cattle in Uruguay numbered more than five millions, the sheep two millions, and the horses nearly one million. The population increased at the almost incredible rate of nine percent per annum after the overthrow of Oribe in 1851, until civil war again broke out in 1863. During these years, Colorado chiefs occupied the presidency, sometimes succeeding one another, sometimes by pronunciamento, and sometimes by a form of election. General Venancio Flores, an able and ruthless officer, became the principal figure among the Colorados. In 1853, he was a member of a triumvirate which forced the legal president to withdraw, and in 1854 he was himself raised to the presidency, only to be obliged to resign the following year. As is usual in South America, the dominant party split into factions, led by ambitious chiefs, and lost popularity. The Blancos, as soon as they got into power, obtained control of the Senate, and their prestige and wealth soon balanced the military force of their opponents. In 1860 they finally prevailed, and their leader, Berro, became constitutional president of the Republic. The Colorados, however, did not propose to submit. Massed upon the Argentine frontier, they held themselves ready to fall upon their successful opponents at the first opportunity. Flores had been exiled and joined the Argentine army, but in 1863 he obtained aid in Buenos Aires and disembarked upon the Uruguayan coast with a considerable force. His partisans rose, and he obtained possession of a large portion of the country, and set up a government of his own. For a year the contest went on with varying fortunes, and then this fight between Blancos and Colorados involved all the neighboring nations, and brought on the greatest war which has ever devastated South America 
and which resulted in the nearly complete destruction of the Paraguayan people. The Unitarians, then in power at Buenos Aires, naturally sympathized with the leader of their own Colorado allies, and were inclined to aid Flores's attempt to regain control of Montevideo. Brazil favored his pretensions even more actively. The Brazilians of Rio Grande owned most of the land and cattle just over the Uruguayan border, a third of all the rural properties in the Republic being taxed to them, and complaints of extortion often came to the Rio government. The Blanco president refused the satisfaction demanded, and Brazil determined to enforce the claims of her citizens. Flores was formally recognized as the legitimate ruler of the country, and a fleet and army were sent to his assistance. López, dictator of Paraguay, thought Brazil's intervention in Uruguay dangerous to the international equilibrium of South America. He protested, and when the Brazilian government persisted and sent its army over the border, he began war. The Brazilians advanced to Montevideo, and their fleet came down the coast. The city was blockaded by sea and besieged by land, while the main body of the Allies advanced against the town of Paysandú on the Uruguay River, where the Blancos had assembled in force. The place was taken by assault and given up to a horrible pillage, the recollection of which is still graven in the memory of the Uruguayans. The Blanco party never recovered from this slaughter. Those in Montevideo saved themselves by surrendering the town without resistance. Flores entered in triumph, and the Blanco leaders fled into exile. Flores was under obligation to lead a division in the war against Paraguay, and he absented himself for that purpose for nearly two years, during which the country districts were somewhat disturbed. In 1867 he returned and restored order with a strong hand. This short lease of undisturbed power was employed in making many important improvements. Great public edifices were completed, the telegraph cable was laid to Buenos Aires, the building of railroads was begun, and a new civil code adopted. Immigration was resumed on a large scale, and the country felt the economic impulse that was already transforming the whole Plate Valley. Although the country rapidly prospered under the military administration of Flores, the feelings of the Blancos remained intensely bitter, and on the 15th of February, 1868, the Colorado president was assassinated in the streets of Montevideo. Flores's death was the signal for wholesale executions and for the outbreak of another long Blanco insurrection. Although the growth of wealth and population never been more rapid than at this very time, the country was not free from civil disturbance until 1872, when an armistice was signed. A year later, troubles broke out again, and the troops refused to march against the insurgents. To the bitterness of party feeling and the official corruption which diminished the revenue and hampered commerce was added the embarrassment of the financial difficulties which followed the Great Panic of 1873. The public debt had doubled in the ten years between 1860 and 1870 and now reached the enormous figure of over $40 million, nearly $100 for each inhabitant in the country. One president after another was unable to maintain himself in the face of the financial and political difficulties of the situation. But in 1876, General Lorenzo La Torre, an intelligent and determined Colorado chief, became dictator. For economy's sake, he reduced the number of army officers, of whom there were over 1,200 for 2,000 privates. 
he rooted out the worst frauds in the customs service and refunded the public debt, compelling the foreign creditors to accept six instead of twelve percent interest. At the same time he rigidly suppressed the disorders which had harassed the country since the murder of Flores. The bands of marauders, assassins and bandits, who had exercised their nefarious occupations under cover of belonging to the insurrectionists, were relentlessly pursued and brought to justice. For the first time in years a traveller could traverse the country from end to end without arms. Like Flores, La Torre often used brute force to secure peace and order, and the Uruguayans were too turbulent to submit long to such dictation. Countless conspiracies were formed which were bloodily suppressed, but public fear and dislike of La Torre grew continually more menacing. In 1880, tired out with constant anxieties and grieved over what he considered the ingratitude of his countrymen, La Torre resigned his office and went into exile. His successor, Dr. Vidal, held the presidency for only two years, when he too was forced to resign. The next president, Maximo Santos, served his complete term of four full years, ending in 1886. Then Vidal managed to get back into power for a few months, and was again replaced by Santos, who in turn was succeeded by Tajes, who governed the country until 1890. The ten years succeeding the resignation of La Torre was materially very prosperous. The sheep industry developed tremendously. The production of wheat was more than doubled. Immigration ran up to nearly 20,000 a year. The population of the country reached 700,000, having increased from 400,000 in 12 years. Immigration had been so great that the number of the foreign-born almost equaled the natives, even when including in the latter those of foreign parentage. In the mixture of nationalities, the foundations have been laid for a race of unusual vigor and of pure Caucasian descent. The bitterness of the old factional feeling largely died out during the disturbances which succeeded the murder of Flores. The Blancos had suffered terrible losses in 1864, and the Colorados had become far the more numerous party. During La Torre's dictatorship, the distinctions between the two were almost lost, and the Blanco party, by that name at least, ceased to be an active factor in politics. New factions, however, took their place but the struggles for place and power lacked the conviction and ferocity of the old civil wars. The gaucho and creole element, although still politically dominant, was diluted by the infiltration of a more industrially-minded population. The people were not so exclusively pastoral, and had ceased to be so military in their tastes. The foreign immigrants wanted peace, a chance to sow their wheat and tend their sheep undisturbed, and the gaucho living on his horse feeding on beef alone and always ready to ride off to fight by the side of his favorite chief ceased in many of the departments to be the dominant factor politics became largely a game played by the ruling spanish-american caste and did not directly interfere with the material interests of the country and rarely affected the maintenance of law and order the prosperity of the eighties had been accompanied by an enormous increase in governmental expenditures and debt. The economies, so painfully enforced by La Torre's administration, were abundant. Nearly as much money was spent in ten years as had been in the previous fifty years of the Republic's existence. 
the debt more than doubled, and the deficit each year equalled 50% of the receipts. The Buenos Aires Panic of 1890 brought on grave commercial difficulties. Real estate dropped one-half, prices fell, and, as usual, the people blamed the government. Political disturbances began with an attempt at a Blanco uprising in Montevideo in 1891. The clergy were active in fomenting dissatisfaction, but the trouble was suppressed for the time. Herrera y Obes, elected in 1890, served his term out, but the government was getting deeper and deeper into the financial mire, in spite of having cut down the rate of interest on the public debt 50%. The murmurs of the public grew constantly more menacing against the taxation which had become so excessive that it almost threatened the destruction of industries. When the election came on in 1894, the outgoing president found that he had not control of Congress, the body which elects the president. A deadlock ensued, and the ballots were taken amid confusion and fears of intimidation. Ayaure, the president's candidate, dared not accept because of the threatening attitudes of the opposition. Finally, Juan Idiarte Borda was declared elected, amid outcries and protests against dictation and terrorism. The new president pledged himself to reform the finances and pursue a conciliatory policy towards the different factions, but he was soon accused of extravagance and favoritism. The Blancos had again become a formidable party after twenty years of eclipse, and they believed that they were being deprived of their political rights by the Colorado president. In 1896 he procured the election of a Congress completely under his control, and early in 1897, seeing no hope of a constitutional change, a Blanco colonel named Lamas raised the standard of revolt, assembled a force in the western provinces, and gained a victory over the president's soldiers. He marched east and joined Aparicio Saraiva, a chief belonging to a family celebrated in the military annals of Brazil, who had brought a considerable force over the border. The rebels soon had possession of the eastern departments and menaced Montevideo, while Borda borrowed money right and left and armed and drilled regiment after regiment to prosecute the war against them. Nevertheless, the rebels maintained themselves and roamed the country at will. They would listen to no terms that did not include Borda's resignation, and it seemed as if the country was doomed to pass through another long and bloody civil war. On the 25th of August, 1897, President Borda was assassinated in the streets of Montevideo by a respectable grocer's clerk. The vice-president, Juan L. Cuestas, succeeded peacefully to the control of the government in Montevideo, and at once entered into negotiations with the leaders of the insurrectionists in the departments. Terms were quickly agreed upon. Cuestas conceded minority representation and electoral reform, and in a very short time the rebels had laid down their arms. The few months of war had cost Uruguay dear. Thirteen million dollars had been spent by the government, the collection of the revenue had been interrupted, and internal transportation had been demoralized. Now, however, industry and commerce resumed their usual course, and since President Cuestas's accession to power, the peace of the country had been undisturbed. Political manifestations have been confined to disputes in Congress and the press. They became so violent that in 1898 the president dissolved the chambers and declared himself dictator. 
he reorganized the army on a basis which ensured that there would be no mutinies, and at the same time pursued a policy of administrative reform which had done much to bring order out of the financial confusion. The obligations of the government have been religiously performed, and Uruguay's currency is on a gold basis. In 1899, Cuestas was elected president according to the forms of the Constitution. He carried out the pledge he had given the Blancos not to interfere with the elections, and in 1900 they made great gains and elected enough members to control the Senate. The political situation has, therefore, been somewhat strained, but there seems to be no danger that the congressional opposition will try to interfere with the executive functions of the president. The gallant and pugnacious little people will continue to play a role in South American affairs out of all proportion to the size of their country. Uruguay seems certain to continue to be the political storm center of the Atlantic coast. Climate, soil and geographical position ensure a rapid increase in population and wealth, while its political independence must continue to be an object of constant solicitude on the part of its gigantic neighbors. Argentina and Brazil. Montevideo is a formidable trade rival to Buenos Aires, and must always be, as it has so often been in the past, the base for any attack at the heart of the Argentine Republic. To the north, nothing but an artificial boundary separates Uruguay from Rio Grande do Sul, and the two regions are alike in everything except language. Should the Portuguese Americans again evince those tendencies towards expansion which distinguished them in the 17th and 18th centuries, Uruguay would be the natural point of attack, and if Brazil should ever divide into its component parts, as it came so near doing in 1822 and again in 1837, Rio Grande and Uruguay might find it necessary to coalesce, or possibly wars might ensue between them which would change the face of South America. A not improbable alternative would be the establishment of a power on the north bank of the plate strong enough to hold its own, and which might play the same role in the interaction of Spanish and Portuguese Americans as did Flanders between the Teutons and Latins in Europe. End of section 23